Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink and this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 10th edition of the Bookseller Podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858, reporting on everything from the publication of The Mill on the Floss to all the excitements of Super Thursday last week. In this edition, we're talking to Andrew Michael Hurley about his new novel, Starve Acre, and to Oke Chuku and Zelu about his debut novel, The Private Joys of Nena Maloney. I'm so interested in the differences between the two cultures that I'm familiar with. I wanted a way to sort of bring those together in one book. Um, and then I thought, OK, I want this to be funny. <laughs> so I drafted <laughs> it as a comedy. I'll be joined by Caroline Sanderson and Tom Tiffnan, who'll take us through the big books of October. And Helen Stanton from Forum Books will be our guest for Meet the Indie. We've got two audio clips this month, 35 hilarious seconds from Adam Kay's new collection of diaries, and we'll play out with an extract from The Giver of Stars by Jojo Moyes. First, let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. We've got Caroline Sanderson and Tom Tivenen from The Bookseller. Hello. Hello. And with me as he is every month is The Bookseller's chief exec, Nigel Roby. Hi, Cathy. So, Tom, vast amounts of books came out last week on Thursday. Uh, explain to us what Super Thursday is, because I was trying to tell my parents about it, and of course they're normal people, not book industry people, so they didn't know. So tell us about it. Well, it's something we want normal people, non-book industry people to know about. Um, it's the Thursday in the year, uh, generally in October, when the most amount of books are released. So it's sort of the big releases in the run-up to Christmas, and we want to make a big song and dance about it that the whole trade can celebrate. Um, it was started by the bookseller, I should say, uh, my ex-colleague Philip Stone, uh, who used to be our charts guy, kind of figured out that all these books were being published on a Thursday in October. So it's a big, huge celebration of the amazing books that are coming out in Christmas time. And tell us what some of them are. Well, <laughs> the shops are now full with all these what books. What some of them aren't. Uh, there's the new John Le Carre, which is kind of the old sort of aging agent, one last job kind of thing, uh, but which sounds very good. There's a sequel to uh, Heather Morse's The Tattooist of Auschwitz, which is one of the biggest books uh, of the past couple of years. It's sold almost a million copies in all formats. Um, and on and on, the new Peter James, the new Martina Cole, on and on. And perhaps the biggest one that came out on Super Thursday is Philip Pullman's The Secret Commonwealth, the sequel to the prequel, which is a sequel <laughs> to the first trilogy of his Dark Materials. It's brilliant as well. Can I say, my son and I are reading it together while well, I'm reading it aloud to him. And there's a murder quite early on. And Matt said, oh, he said, I'm not sure about this, mummy. And, and I said, well, just read on a bit more. This is the first session and I finished. I said, what do you think then? He said, well, he said, I did think that murder was a bit grim, but, you know, I'm just committed now because it's such a good story. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that. The world-weary way he just said, I'm just committed. Because you know? it's a brick-sized brick book and we're reading it in half-hour chunks, morning and evening. But it is just superb. It's just wonderful. So bound to be making lots of people happy, I think, not just us. Yeah, I'm really late to the whole Philip Pullman his Dark Materials thing, because uh, I only read them maybe last year, the first three. And, you know, I'm an adult. I'm a man of a certain age. Well, and maybe you say that, Tom. <laughs> uh, maybe it's not for me, but they are so brilliant. Um, and so I gobbled up the first 
sequel, prequel, what is it called? Yeah, La Belle Sauvage. La Belle Sauvage. Or La Belle Sausage for <laughs> anyone who's read it. Um, Which again, that really pleases a nine, ten year old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've just started, because, uh, spoiler, we're actually taping this on the day it releases. But yeah, I've just started The Secret Commonwealth and I am hooked. It's amazing. Well, it's funny because I had exactly the same thing. I was chatting to my cousin who, he won't mind me saying, but he's well into his 60s. And he was saying, oh, I'm really looking forward to it. I really love Philip Pullman's writing. And I was thinking, oh, I kind of associated it with a much, much younger demographic. But my cousin absolutely loves it. And he's a picky old so-and-so. So, um, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating, that age spread, isn't it? Because I I think when the first Philip Pullman's came out, they were deemed to be YA and sort of crossover. And now you're reading it to your... Nine, ten, ten year old. Ten son. year old, yeah. But yeah. Course, we read Northern Lights, I think, probably when he was eight. Yes. So, Being and read he, too I mean, to be thing. honest, he's quicker on the uptake than I am on the science stuff. I mean, I know it's kind of made <laughs> up, but my, such is my scientific grasp of the world that I have no idea what's made up and what's not made up. And he, like, I, all that stuff just sort of slightly whizzes over my head. But of course, I like the character and the magic stuff. I do think it's wondrous when you find a book that has that appeal to, you know, a 10 year old boy mm. and a 46 year old woman and lots of other people as well it is a you know it's a great thing to share a reading experience like that 46 eh? i would have thought 36 oh that's so kind i have no (laughs) idea i might be 47 or more 48 so i've forgotten how old i am that's another one of my uh challenges um so also out tom i think you have very much enjoyed as i have starve acre by andrew michael hurley yeah it's an amazing book this is his third book he uh, sort of broke through with his debut, which I believe won the Nibby for it best debut. did. Movie. Book of the Year. Yeah. Lonely. Uh, the Lonely. Um, this is another Moorish book. Uh, I say that because it's set in the Yorkshire Moors, and it's a very bad pun, and I'm very sorry. Um, but it's another gothic tale that he does really well. Really kind of spooky and unsettling. A lot of humanity in the back of it. It's very um, Wuthering Heights. The book it reminded me of they're not in lots of ways similar is Lanny by Max Porter oh yeah I, I can see that which should have been on the book a short it list absolutely should have been on the book a short list one of the few recent novels that I have read but yes I loved Lanny uh, also Jojo Moyes the wonderful Jojo Moyes has a new novel out called The Giver of Stars this is a rather delightful story set in Kentucky where women went round on horseback delivering books to people What's not to love about that? <laughs> very, very, very excited about that. And I think the Queen of Crime had a year off last year, didn't she, Tom? Yeah, my favourite, Martina Cole, um, for some reason took a year off. Uh, I guess she's entitled to it. But she's back with another tale of a woman in a man's world who you don't mess with, much like Martina herself, perhaps. I don't know. Actually, I do know she... Uh, <laughs> um, I've met her a couple of times and she's amazing. Anyway, sorry, I won't fanboy too much about her. But yeah, I love her books because they're about crime, but not really. They're about the difficulties of family more than anything else. And about women who are trying to sort the mess that men make out of their lives. And it's kind of like, you know, my home, I guess, in some ways. (laughs) Um, And Zadie Smith, short stories? Yeah, she has a collection of short stories. The great thing about this is there's about 10 new ones. Usually when people trot these out, there's often, you know, they've appeared somewhere else. And seven of them were in The New Yorker, which is kind of where she's published quite a bit. But 10 really fascinating new ones. This also released on Super Thursday. So one for the literary folk on Super Thursday. She's just written a very good piece about uh, ideas around cultural 
appropriation and whether or not you should write what you know or not. Um, I was reading that this morning and just thinking what a great writer and thinker she is. And that hardback, um, this will sound a bit shallow compared with what we've just said, but that hardback is so beautiful, that green and yeah, blue hardback. You can, you can sort of graphically, you can see it from about two miles off, I yeah, think. Okay, yeah. Stunning. Yeah, no, that's good. No, I think we're all fans of book design in this room. <laughs> yeah. And also The Private Joys of Nena Maloney by Okachuku Nzelu. I enjoyed that very much and we're talking to him later on. That is a coming-of-age story set in Manchester. I can't get enough of coming-of-age stories set in Manchester because it's <laughs> nearer to where I was having my own coming-of-age story <laughs> up in the north, so more northern books is all good. <laughs> Uh, Caroline, tell us about non-fiction. Jess Phillips's book is all over the place, isn't it? Truth to yes, Power. Yes, the wonderful Jess Phillips. I mean, she's fantastic value, isn't she? And and just loves stirring things up. And by God, do we need that at the moment? Mm. Um, I've seen her speak a couple of times, uh, most recently last year at Cheltenham Literature Festival, I think. And uh, so it's great to see her everywhere and um, flying the flag for Birmingham as well. Talking yeah. of cities in the Midlands. Yeah, <laughs> cut me and I bleed Birmingham, she exactly. says. I did love Yes, well, I'm a Midlands girl, so yeah. that's I, I like hearing that. And what else, non-fiction-wise, is happening? Well, I was wondering when you were going to get onto non-fiction in October, because <laughs> there's a little bit being published. It's very hard to uh, sort of characterise it in a few sentences. But I would say that the two things that I picked out were the number of music memoirs that are mm. being published, from Debbie Harry's Face It, Elton John, Me... Andrew Ridgely's Wham, George and Me, which I actually really enjoyed. I didn't expect to quite as much, but it's very much my era. And there's some fabulous photos in there of Wham in their heyday with all the kind of fashion disasters that go with that. Brett Anderson Afternoons with the Blinds Down, a rather more literary book, Mm -hmm. beautifully written, that one. And my own choice is Morning Glory on the Vine by Joni Mitchell, which is a republication of a book that she wrote in a very limited edition to give us gifts years ago the other big trend I'd say and that this is not a new one but that's um for quiz books this is my October bandwagon given the success of quiz books over the last couple of years there's just heaps and heaps of them I'm particularly geeky about maps so I can choose between the AA British Roadmap puzzle book or the Royal Geographical Society puzzle book and there's also the Penguin quiz book which I think could be quite fun is, is that? that penguin the birds? Yeah. I was just thinking different actually, types of penguins. That's a nice idea, actually. <laughs> I might do that. Um, no, Penguin, the venerable publisher. So it's lots and lots of literary questions about books that Penguin oh, have published over so the years. Much. I, yeah, want that. I do want that more James than Wilson. Penguin the birds, much, much, much more. <laughs> oh, I've now got a new desire. Um, and of course, Adam Kay has the next instalment of his medical diaries out called Twas the Night Shift Before Christmas. Yes, I mean, that, that will be huge and that's really one to look forward to as well, definitely. Yes, and the first book's been hugely successful, isn't it? Oh, this astonishingly is going to so. Sort of <laughs> yes. like broke every available record going, I think. Yes, amazing. In amazing. the charts for years and years. So we have a little clip of it now. It's only 35 seconds long. Monday, 20th of November, 2006. The Christmas rotor has been emailed round and, jingle balls, I've drawn the short straw. Colleagues give me sympathetic looks all day. Donald, one of the other SHOs, pats me on the back. Hard lines, mate. I open my mouth to tell him it's fine when he jumps straight in with, my mum's dying and it's the last Christmas I'm going to spend with her. Oh God, Don, I'm so sorry, I had no idea. I wasn't asking to swap. No, no, it's my suggestion for you. 
email them back with that as your excuse. I can just completely imagine that people will unwrap this under the tree Christmas morning and then we'll, you know, we'll escape from family on Christmas afternoon no, and they just They'll dip say, into it. I wanted a book about penguins. <laughs> <laughs> but it'd be found somewhere in the house chortling away, I think. Yes. Um, another book I wanted to mention, because I just love it so much, is The Little Library Year by Kate Young. Has anyone seen this? She did the Little Library Cookbook. Yeah. It's basically a bringing together yes, of, of love of books and love of food and love of cooking. And there's just not much that makes me happier than reading her words. She's a beautiful writer. And it's full of like really gorgeous stuff, like you know recipes for what they would have eaten in Narnia, that kind of thing. It's just delightful and um, food for the soul in every possible way. Yeah, it's brilliant. Her first one was amazing as well, so... Pick them up as a double gift for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just love books about books, really. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I Absolutely. love books about books. And there's um, big meaty biographies. Tell us what you've got. For me. I love big meaty biographies. I think we talk a lot about memoir these days, quite quite rightly, because there's been some incredible memoirs published, not least Adam Kay, as mm-hmm. we were saying. But a book I love for October is Young Chang's Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, which traces the histories of three sisters in China. And they were sort of integral in the 20th century. And it covers a big sweep of 20th century Chinese history. I learned so much about China. And and I just, it's that, that thing sometimes you can't beat, for me, a big sweeping biography that you can really, really get your teeth into and that teaches you so much as well, but you just get swept up in people's lives lives as befits this Christmas season it's a beautiful looking book as well it's sort of in Chinese red and then you open it and it's got sort of Chinese wallpaper end papers it's absolutely beautiful and then a little dark horse I think for Christmas possibly is an illustrated book and I did want to mention an illustrated book because I mean actually there's some of my favourite presents as opposed to you know narrative books sometimes they're just such a treat to open at Christmas It's a book called All Good Things by Stephen Elcock, who has been posting for the last few years on, I think, Instagram and Facebook. He's a picture researcher and what he does is he finds tremendous images from books and paintings and photographs and he sort of posts one a day for your sort of just enjoyment of the beauty of an image. And he posts them with the object of calming the soul, provoking wonder and re-energising the spirit. I know. (laughs) Don't we all need a bit of that? Don't Um, we? And so now there's a book, All Good Things, published by September Publishing. And it's the most beautiful book, really just a collection of some of these really inspiring images. And they're incredibly diverse from pages from natural history books to stunning black and white photographs from all over the world as well and it's just a visual feast really Mm. September Publishing a lovely little firm I've just been uh, reading uh, Among the Summer Snows by Christopher Nicholson which is as it sounds Summer Snows in Scottish Highlands and it's just gorgeously put together as well as the book being fantastic it's just a really really nice little package Lovely. Uh, Anything else for us, Caroline? A last one, maybe? Well, having waxed lyrical about biographies, I will mention one memoir, which I did enjoy, which is Unicorn, the Memoir of a Muslim Drag Queen by Amrou Al-Khadi, a.k.a. Glamrou. Tremendous fun. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much both for coming in. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a lovely October. Now it's time to talk to Okichuku Nzelu. He's a writer and teacher, born in Manchester in 1988, and he's going to tell us about his first novel, The Private Joys of Nana Maloney. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. What does it feel like to have your first novel out in the world today? 
honestly, it feels like a dream. <laughs> I've been sort of walking on a cloud all day. It's so exciting and slightly terrifying, but just so wonderful to know that what was sort of my sort of private um, document is now uh, a book, a real book that's out in the world. I just can't wait for readers to find it. I really loved the novel. Tell us what the starting point for it was. What came first to you? The first thing I think that came was the, the idea of the relationships rather than the characters themselves, if that makes sense. The characters kind of resolved themselves over time and over quite a few different drafts. Um, but I knew that I wanted to write a familial relationship. And then I thought of refine that to a mother-daughter one. And I thought, I'm so interested in people's different experiences. My own is, both of my parents came over from Nigeria in the 80s. Um, and I was born here and I've always known, I've always had a connection both to English culture here and to the Nigerian culture that my parents came from. And I'm so fascinated by this idea of what might happen if you weren't connected with that, or if you didn't, if you weren't familiar with it. And I'm so interested in the differences between the two cultures that I'm familiar with. And I wanted a way to sort of bring those together in one book. Um, and then I thought, okay, I want this to be funny. <laughs> so I drafted <laughs> it as a comedy. And then I want, and then I thought, okay, I need to think about the the wider the wider character. So things kind of um, evolved in different layers, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And so Nena, Nena's a delightful creation. Tell us a bit about her. <laughs> Thank you. So Nena is a 16-year-old teenager. She's living in Manchester with her single mother, Joni. And uh, Nena is half Nigerian. And she lives with her mother, Joni, who's white, and Nena's never met her father, uh, Morris. And we don't initially know why. As the novel proceeds, we start to learn more about um, Morris's past and his relationship with Joni, Nana's mother. And the novel is really about Nana's uh, journey of self-discovery. She's a languages prodigy. She's brilliant at French. But her boyfriend makes a passing comment about the fact that she doesn't speak, quote, her own language. And this sort of spurs her on further to pursue this journey of, of self-discovery, of looking into her past. And that sort of strains the relationship with her mother because her mother doesn't want to discuss her father and it makes her very uncomfortable but Nana as the story goes on she learns more and more and it's really a novel of self-discovery and of coming of age and the difficulties that come with that at any age. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was so well done because we care about Nana and we also really care about Joni and uh, I thought about how if I was reading this book when I was younger I would be identifying sort of probably uniquely with Nana but now I'm a mother myself I've sort of really <laughs> felt for Joni and there's a limit to what Joni understands about her daughter, isn't there? So Nena has yeah. to explain to her, you know, about the fact that people behave differently to her when she's on her own. Could you tell yeah. us a bit more about that? Yeah, I'm just fascinated by communication and how difficult it is. I think that's, you know, one of the things that you realise as you get older is that you might be passionate about something and you might love somebody very much, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can always get your words out in the right way and that you can communicate what you're feeling to them because communication is hard. It's such a cliche, but it's hard, it's hard to communicate um, sort of properly with the people that you care about sometimes. I'm really interested in this sort of gap of experience between the two of them because for all Joni's good intentions, the world doesn't treat her the way that it treats Nana. And sometimes, you know, when she sees these things about Nana and she sees people sort of treating Nana unfairly because of um, Nana's uh, ethnicity, she, you know, it makes her angry, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she understands it from her own point of view. And so one of the sort of tensions that, that arises towards the middle of the novel is the fact that as whatever Joni's intentions are, Nana, has, her life is just different. And this means that Nana needs to be able to understand 
herself completely. She's going to be able to react and respond and to find her own sort of point of view in life. She, she just needs to understand where she comes from in order to be able to deal with that properly. And Joni needs to not keep trying to protect her to keep her safe, really, doesn't she? Yeah, it's a funny thing because Joni has the best of intentions in a lot of ways, but she's also human and she's frail and there are reasons why she keeps the truth from Nena. Um, but Nena can't understand those until she understands the whole story. But for Nena to hear the whole story is an incredibly painful thing and difficult thing for Joni to do. So I really wanted to get across this sense of them both wanting something completely reasonable. You know, Nena wants to understand more about herself. Joni doesn't want to relive a painful experience. But at the same time, they both need to understand each other as well. And I think that's part of, well, any sort of parent-child relationship at some point. And I think that kind of good intent and mutual fear is part of any sort of close relationship at some point you get to know somebody and you might get to know some difficult parts about them as well absolutely and it all happens in manchester it does yeah so the novel is mostly set in manchester with flashbacks to the relationship between the parents where they met in cambridge and we learn about how that relationship develops and the sort of the difficulties that they face and what happens to them and we learn about why Morris is no longer around. But I'm really glad that I wrote it in Manchester. It's a city that I am from. I'm, I was born here. I grew up here. I live here now and I love it. And it's such a diverse, fascinating place that I know really well and I feel so fond of. And I think you're a teacher, is that right? I am indeed. How yeah. did you find the time to write the novel? Were you an early morning person or a summer holidays person burning the I'd midnight oil? <laughs> I'd love to say I'm an early morning person, but unfortunately <laughs> I've always been a nighttime person. And yeah, I would just sort of get home from work, do my marking and then crack on with my writing. I, my ideal time of writing is sort of between... 10 p.m. and, and 1 a.m. Um, I'm not really sure why, um, and it's not always the most convenient when you've got a full-time job, but I sort of just, I always just really wanted to do it, and the more I wrote of this story, the more I got to know about the characters and the more sort of desperate I was to tell this story, so I wrote it really because I, I couldn't not write it. Oh, that's wonderful. So The Private Joys of Nena Maloney is out in the world now. Bernadine Evaristo is a fan. That must feel pretty special. That feels incredible. What a wonderful honour to have praise from Bernadine Evaristo. It's just fantastic. And thank you so much for talking to us. And we hope that your onward journey into publication is as delightful as your fictional creation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And now I'm going to hand you over to Nigel for our new section, which is called Meet the Indie. And our first guest is Helen Stanton from Forum Books. Thanks, Cathy. And yeah, Meet the Indie. Uh, in a sense, Meet the Indie is what we've been doing thus far with the, the book doctors. But we just thought, well, what we really like about it is hearing about people's shops and where they are and what's so special about them and how they came into bookselling. So it's a very warm welcome uh, this time round to Helen from Forum Books in Corbridge, which is up in Northumberland. And that's about all I know about where it is. So, Helen, sort of tell us about Corbridge. Tell us about Forum. You know, has it been there forever? Uh, you know, have you been in uh, Corbridge since 1823 or something? <laughs> um, almost. The, the bookshop's been in Corbridge since the 70s. Um, it's right in the heart of this like, beautiful Northumberland village. But it's a village that's only 20 minutes outside of Newcastle. So if you imagine Newcastle, if you just go a bit to the left, along the A69 towards Carlisle, we're just there. Um, we're on a good junction with the A68, so you can go straight from us up across the border and you can get to Main Street Trading, Rose's Shop. So we're in a lovely position. It's a beautiful village. No one needs Google Maps here. You know, <laughs> you're just getting detailed, you know, 
go down the A68, you know, do half a mile this way. Yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can come on the train. Uh, oh, up by you got the it train all. From Newcastle. <laughs> I looked it up, actually, on Google, obviously. And, I mean, Corbridge looks a lovely little place. And part of Hadrian's Wall is in the town or alongside the town? It is. It? Well, the Roman site we have in Corbridge is a supply site to the wall. And we're just at the bottom of the valley right by the River Tyne. If you go to the top of the hill, that's where Hadrian's Wall is. Right by us, it's just the Vallum, which is the ditch. But if you go a little bit further west, that's the really beautiful and impressive bit and the bit that everybody will kind of recognise from Sycamore Gap and, and Housesteads. It's, it's a lovely spot to be. And I hope that Rory Stewart, uh, the I, mean, I was going to say the Tory MP, but I don't think he is a Tory MP anymore, because he did that book, didn't he, The Marches, that was based on walking along Hadrian's Wall with his father. So I hope he popped in. Well, he came, um, you know, back in the Reavers' time, the, this area was divided into marches, but it was east, west and middle, rather than a kind of a Scottish English. And, yeah. and it was completely lawless with the Reavers and the, the um, cattle and sheep rustling and the family clans. It was really turbulent and, and interesting times. And what we've got just outside the shop is a, a medieval peel tower. And these are the battle houses, which were, there's not very many in towns. They're usually kind of in the middle of the, the landscape. But in the bottom, when you come in, it's quite a low ceiling. And that's where the cattle would go, or the sheep. And then the people would go upstairs. But that's a lovely little pub now. So we've got a lovely pub just opposite us. Okay, we're there. I can see Cathy. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you come to be involved in foreign books? Well, I was actually on maternity leave in Edinburgh. I'd worked for a couple of Scottish publishers. I'd worked for Canongate and I was working for Berlin and Polygon. We had known that this shop might be coming up for sale um, because my husband's a literary agent and is Paul Tordy's agent or was then. So he'd been down to Northumberland and done some lovely events with Paul and foreign books and you met the owners who were who were looking to retire so that was a perfect spot it was a good excuse for me to move back to the northeast but just knowing Corbridge it's um not only a beautiful place but it's a pretty unique high street and that were all independent shops apart from the co-op boots and the post office so I thought if any independent was going to survive and thrive this was such a good high street to be on and we've got other supportive shops and it is that beautiful place to come to everybody else that's got a shop is really on it and passionate and works really hard at what they do so yeah it kind of came through that we weren't actually looking because I was on maternity leave and then it all kind of comes when you you least expect it so that was in 2011 height of recession (laughs) not a great time to buy books well I I did it was over 30 on the market not finding yeah not finding buyers so it it, yeah it felt a bit of a leap um but but a good one it's worked out Brilliant. Well, let's talk about some books. And what's selling well for you at the moment in Corbridge? There's a real mix. We've just launched. We had an event last night with Dan Jackson. He's done um, a lovely book called The Northumbrians, which is um, a history of northeast England and its people. So he had a brilliant slideshow. So that's that's probably going to be our new bestseller, but that's only just come out. We've got a real mix. I think um, it's one of the kind of the pleasures and the perils of indie book selling we sell such a range of books and that's why i'd love kind of publishers to come on the shop floor to kind of see what we sell in a day because it's it's such a range obviously today is uh, the third of october and um, so we've sold a few of the new um philip pullman so i'm sure that'll oh, do really of course well yeah <laughs> um, so we've got all of these ones coming out today it is such a range we've done incredibly well leonard and hungry paul's probably our best seller of the year 
Um, we've been hand-selling that since it came out at the start of the year. It's just a very gentle, lovable tale about two guys slightly out of sorts with the world. So it's a very kind of gentle gem. It's not about anything in particular, their friendship and conversations, but it's just heartwarming and lovely, but in a very unusual and non-cloying way. Yeah. <laughs> Ones like that that we hand sell uh, always do well. We, we've got a lot of local writers like Matt Weselowski, Mari Hanna, um, Dan James. Their fiction works really well for us because we're fans. They're yeah. good at what they do. Are those books that are centred on the locality as well? Because that sort of seems to be a bit like you know Peter May and the Hebrides and that sort of thing. I think especially both Mari Hanna and Anne Cleves because of their sentence. Obviously, we won't have another Vera till next year. And I think Mari's new book's coming next year as well. But the, those local sentence our customers obviously really adore, and especially Vera as well, because she's such a fantastic character. And Anne's just amazing. We did a beautiful event um, with her for the last Shetland book in the chapel last year, where she brought a Shetland fiddler. Oh, and nice. And Shetland gin. And it was just, I think... It, Shetland like, gin, did you say? Yeah, they've oh, done a so. signature gin fan because <laughs> it was the last Jimmy and um, and the fiddler had, had written a lament for Jimmy Perez. And it was oh. it was just actually when we had the music in and it, it was so atmospheric. You were kind of transported there and the way Anna talked about the islands and stuff beforehand, it was amazing. So some of the stuff with music that we've done in the shop has been great. Music and bookshops seems to be a coming thing because... Uh, Mr. B down in Bath, he's had the bookshop band down there. I think he may have been sort of instrumental in then sort of getting a profile. So they were playing up at Robert McFarlane's, the launch of Underland at uh, Daunt's in uh, Manvan High Street. So this is the new thing. We've gone through the coffee shop phase and we're now into the gig phase. Uh, <laughs> well, I think it's just when, we're, especially when we stage events, um, it just kind of lends something. So we had the Catherine Tekela album on last night, her latest one, with the Northumbrian pipes and the traditional songs for the Northumbrians. We do silent discos as well in the shop. I don't know if you <laughs> no, know that's that. That's just plain <laughs> weird. <laughs> so we do them every Saturday. Um, sometimes we'll do a playlist from an author. Um, a lot of children's authors are brilliant for that. Um, that's a neat idea. And it just means that people can still browse. It's optional, but they can hear something different. So, you know, if there's the new Debbie Harry book, that's that's an easy one. And Debbie Harry book. came herself, didn't she? She brought Blondie <laughs> just, with her. We just put a bit of Blondie on. But <laughs> other ones we can kind of tie in. And it's incredible how, because, I mean, children love it. I think they want to come on a Saturday and they think they're very cool. They get the, the wireless headphones and they can, they can bop about. <laughs> and it's just a different way of kind of, especially we, we started off doing it to get kids interested in books and just another way in and and having the book nerds a little bit cooler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> However that works, but uh, yeah. <laughs> and tell me, what's sort of coming up? I suppose we're at the start of the run-up to Christmas. What's coming up, books coming out that you're looking forward to, that you think you'll be wanting to get into the hands of your customers? Into my customers' hands rather than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are I'm, supposed I'm really to sell looking, the books, Heather. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the Erin Morgenstern, The Star of the Sea. Yeah. I love The Night Circus, and... It's just the kind of thing that you can lose yourself in, which I just think's the perfect kind of book, um, especially for now. And it just looks absolutely stunning. The one that I think I will be just making a lot of my customers pick up is the new Charlie Macquarie, The the Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse, published by Penguin. It's his illustrations, and it is just a story of those four characters. Mole of cake, but it's heartwarming without being awful. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's just beautiful. Um just lovely illustrations you know it wouldn't take you 
10 minutes to read it, but you go back to it again and again, and the illustrations are absolutely beautiful. The Erin Morgenstern book, I think, has cropped up a couple of times now as we've been talking to people. I think that's definitely a fly, because her previous book, I mean, both was one of those lovely ones where it was a great book and it sold really well and, and sold really well in indie bookshops as well. And at the moment, if, sort of, if I walk through the door, or if Cathy walks through the door, I think, Cathy, you have walked through the door, haven't you? <laughs> oh, I had a brilliant time, yeah. Did you? I had a lovely time when <laughs> I visited. Yeah. Must be, well, I don't know, time's gone funny in my head. I say it must be a couple of years ago. It was whenever my book came out. Well, it, it, it was, because we, we're, we're now in the chapel. Um, so we moved into this listed chapel 18 months ago. Yes, I remember so, you showed it You yeah, showed it to me. You so said that's where we're going. Before we'd kind of put shelves and books in it. But yeah. um, it's such a beautiful space to be in. And we can do our events up to about 60 in our own house, which is lovely. And we've got a pulpit, which was part of the list in which we use as our stage um, for authors, which uh, goes down really well. It's a bit of a reading down during the day for kids. We've got beanbags and things in there. Um, but we've had choirs up there and all sorts as well for, for various things like bookshop days. But it's just kind of creating that beautiful space for the beautiful books that are being published as well. That was kind of always on our mind. And we had a separate children's and a grown-ups shop, which was good to have done but didn't work as well and consolidating everything into one place and we did that last year and that's been great and it's just having that beautiful space for people to come and browse or to come in the evening for events or writers group well you sold me i'm coming to see you but so, we'll be there and, in time for the next silent yeah, disco right. won't yeah. we, Nigel? <laughs> <laughs> no i'm coming for Catherine tickell i love Catherine tickell i went to hear in a concert down where i live in surrey in this very small kind of village come town hall and it's uncanny because you're there in the presence of someone who is an absolute world superstar at what she does, i.e. the Northumbrian pipe. So it's kind of, it's the equivalent of, I don't know, in, in football terms, Lionel Messi turning up or something. <laughs> and it, we were in this small audience of a couple of hundred people. Mind-boggling. Anyway, moving on back to books. So what are you going to get me to buy when I sort of come up and see you? Oh, well, one of my big favourites, which has just come out, is The Secrets We Kept, Lara Prescott. Okay. Oh, yeah, and I love that. Isn't it good? Mm. And I think it, you know, we had so many customers that fell in love with a gentleman in Moscow. This is kind of it's the story of Dr. Zhivago uh, running alongside two women working in the CIA that become spies in the plot to drop the book behind the Iron Curtain back into Soviet Russia where it wasn't being published, where it was being suppressed. And I just think that long game of kind of spies is amazing and just that way, that power of of words and books that would would kind of change hearts and minds if only the russians could read dr shivago <laughs> <laughs> it's so good i really love that one i think we've got some good suggestions there and some good books coming out soon ready for christmas but everyone to storm into your shop in corbridge uh, i'm certainly coming kathy's coming back because she wants to see the chapel and i think secretly she wants to be up in the pulpit uh, uh, well uh, yes not a secret i love uh, pulpits but uh, <laughs> but i must say it's the silent disco that's luring me in <laughs> i really want to go to a silent disco <laughs> We'll put the disco lights on, especially now that the, uh, the darker nights are coming in. We, oh, can, we yeah. can start a bit of that. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Thank you so much for telling us about Corbridge, telling us about you know books that we should be buying, books that your customers should be buying. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for telling us all about Forum Books. Oh, no, thank you. Thanks for asking. Thank you. Take care. Have a lovely day. Oh, and you. Cheers. Andrew Michael Hurley won the Book of the Year Award at the Nibbies with his first novel, The Loney. His second, Devil's Day, won the Encore Award and his third is called Starve Acre. 
Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. That's a pleasure. Um, tell us, what is Starve Acre? Starve Acre is the name of a field and also a house. The novel is set in the, uh, in the Yorkshire Dales, so just over the border from Lancashire into the Yorkshire Dales. And it's a name that's been given to this, this plot of land uh, for, for many years, really. Uh, and it really stems from a local story about an old oak tree that used to grow in this field. Uh, which was uh, which died off for, for some particular reason. Uh, it may be because it was used for hangings, and it was sort of um, God sort of struck it down uh, because it was used for that sort of brutal purpose. Uh, but no one really knows. But anyway, this, the legend of this this tree sort of lingers on, and uh, the story goes that it kind of uh, when it when it died and it rotted away, it sort of poisoned the land of this uh, this field, and nothing has grown there since. It's. Uh, I'm looking at the book in front of me now. It's a very powerful cover with the oak tree and with a noose hanging down from one of the branches. Tell us about. Richard and Juliet, who live at Starveacre. We joined them about six months after their, their son Ewan has died very suddenly. They're still trying to come to terms with what's happened and trying to kind of resolve their grief. Uh, they're kind of pulling in different directions, though. Um, Juliet uh, is still very assured that, that Ewan is in the house in some form. He still kind of remains with them in some form. And she's sort of kept a diary of all those moments of contact that she's had with him since the funeral. There are moments that have become fewer and fewer as time has gone on, and so she's becoming more sort of desperate to retain his spirit in whatever that is. And so she enlists the help of a group of occultists called the Beacons, who she hopes are going to come to the house and kind of uh, draw Ewan's life force or his ghost or, uh, or whatever she thinks that might be uh, back to the house. Richard is pulling in the opposite direction completely. He wants to try and move on. He's trying to persuade Juliet to at least think about having another child. Um, and so this is where the, the sort of tension between those characters um, stems from, really. So the house becomes very sort of claustrophobic, and it's sort of made even worse, really, by the arrival of um, Juliet's sister, Harriet, who thinks that uh, Juliet is losing her mind, and she tries to persuade Juliet to, to go and see a psychiatrist rather than having this, this group of, uh, of occultists come to the house. So, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a very um, kind of pressurised environment that, that all three of them are in. And I think you have this knack, because I think it was the same with the Loney, that you create a situation that's sort of normal-ish, as in it's a normal human situation, there's all these tensions. And I was thinking it's almost, then you tighten the noose around the reader's neck. <laughs> <laughs> So that they, you kind of don't notice, you're sort of reading along and thinking, oh, yes, this seems like quite a you know realistic portrayal of what a couple would be like when their son has died and da 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 And then suddenly things start to happen. I wonder, is that intentional, the way that you, you, you kind of start us off in more or less earthly territory? I, it's a cue that I take from, um, from Shirley Jackson's writing, actually. I'm a, I'm a big admirer of her writing, and I think she does something similar uh, to that, actually, you know, that she sets up these worlds that are seemingly normal and quite sort of recognisable to us, but then she begins to kind of stretch the edges of the reality of that world, and it, until the point where it becomes porous and allows other things in the supernatural, the eldritch, and and the spiritual as well. And I really like that. I think that that makes for really interesting territory for a writer. You know, that you don't necessarily have to write a story about grief within the realms of realism or naturalism. You can include other things in there as well. And I think that, that, yeah, it's just it's just really kind of uh, interesting place to go to with that kind of story, really. There's a bit about, I guess, a little bit more than halfway through. Richard felt the past receding like a tide. The hare had bought the spring. The worst of their grief was over. Perhaps they had survived. 
And I read that and then I sort of had a deep breath and then I turned the page <laughs> and it just says part two. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, okay. I think Richard might be wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of wrong, I, I suppose. But I think the, I wanted to end that, that first part there really on, on a note of at least some hope, you know, that he, he puts his trust and his hope in this, in the symbolism of, of the hair, if nothing else. I think one of, one of the things I was trying to write about in the book was that the kind of the word psychosis kept coming to me when I was when I was writing this book and the way in which grief or bereavement sort of induces a state of psychosis. You know that we we go through that experience and everything's very bewildering and confusing. It's seemingly kind of endless as well, and we can't think straight. We don't know what to think, and and it is a kind of madness really. And I think that we do sort of cling to anything that will provide a moment's sort of respite from that. And this is what Juliet and Richard are doing. So even though they are kind of pulling in opposite directions, I think they are both sort of clinging to, to anything, really, that will provide some kind of um, comfort in some way. You know, So for Juliet, it's, it's the promise of what they, the beacons will, will be able to do when they come. And for Richard, it's the symbolism that he sees in, in the hair as a, as a kind of emblem of, of new life in the spring. Mm-hmm. And his desire to get back to normal, to have another child. Well, he thinks there is a normal for them, doesn't he? Possibly in a way that Juliet doesn't so much. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I think he, uh, it's a normal that comes at a price, though, I think. You know, he, he spends a lot of his time trying to block out the memories of Ewan. So, you know, he kind of listens to very loud music to try and kind of block him out, or he goes to the field, or he kind of ensconces himself in the, in the study. So he kind of asked, the novel sort of asks that question really, is, you know, if you want to move on, how much do we have to forget as well? Um, the setting felt so real to me that I'm now completely convinced that Starvaker exists, <laughs> that the tree exists, that the woodcuts that Richard finds uh, that talk about the history of the tree, that it all exists. Yeah. Um, does any of it exist or is it <laughs> based on anything else or did you completely invent? The, the, the name Starvaker actually I got from uh, a book called English Field Names. This is, this is an exciting way that I spend my time <laughs> reading books like that. But it was, it was really interesting, actually, because it was basically just a, just a list of, of sort of names that have been given to fields. But that one really stood out. Uh, and it didn't really sort of give an explanation about why it was called that. And so that, that really started to get me thinking, really, that, well, what, what is the story behind this film? Why is it called Starvaker? How has it become so kind of sterile that it's been kind of given, given that name? Uh, and that's really where the novel began from, really, I guess, was for that, that name that stood out and trying to think about a, a backstory that might have kind of led to it being called that. It's such a triumph of a novel. I did find it an uneasy read. And in some ways I did feel, um, I don't know, I did feel this very knowing authorial presence. I felt that you know an awful lot about people, <laughs> an awful lot about their domestic uh, secrets. And as Richard looks for the roots of the tree, I did feel that the tendrils of the story wrapped themselves around me. So thank you for that very intense reading experience. It's a pleasure. And thank you so much for talking to us about it. Now, we're nearly at the end of the show, but before we say goodbye, let's get out and about. Nigel, tell us about BookGig. OK, well, BookGig's the bookseller's book events listing site. So if you want to go to an author talk or a festival, then BookGig is the place to find it. So that's bookgig.com. The biggie is Cheltenham. Uh, Cheltenham's on, as we record now, it's on till the 13th. So it's one of the, the giants in the festival world. Elsewhere in the country, 8th of October, this is a cracking one. Jim Kay is talking about the art of Harry Potter. I've actually forgotten where it is, but if you go to Book Gig, it'll be on there. But that's fantastic. Jim illustrated the most recent series of Harry Potter's. Uh, yeah, I the mean, big, uh, the huge that's ones. The one. They're beautiful. That's the one. Then possibly for some of the older folk there, 
30th of October down in Brighton. Patty Smith is coming to Brighton. That sounds fantastic nice. to me. Tom was fulsome in his praise for Martina Cole. Now, she's in Bexley Heath. That's on the 18th of October. And then Caroline was talking about Amaral Al-Qadir, uh, the Muslim drag queen, and he is wowing the crowds in Glasgow Socky Hall Street on the 10th of October. So plenty for you to go there, uh, and they're all on bookdig.com. That's great. I think it's wonderful getting out and about. I have recently been in Chiswick, Jersey, Haworth, Cheltenham, and then I will be at the North Cornwall oh Festival. Where's North Cornwall? It's St Endelian. It's run by Patrick Gale, um, oh, wow. who of course yeah. lives down by Penzance, but runs this lovely festival in North Cornwall. So I'm interviewing Deborah Mogach and Sophie Ratcliffe there. It's very nice. Last year it rained quite a lot. As it, I mean, that's the thing with Cornwall. It's very beautiful, but it just rains all the time. So, uh, so hopefully this year it'll be a clearer day. Well, one from my hometown where I live in Guildford. It's the Guildford Book Festival. Lots of stuff there. I think it may be sold out, but Adele Parks is running a literary lunch. So she's got about six or seven authors with her. And Adele recently became a Sunday Times number one Number one, one I think. Number one right, For the first time in yeah. her very successful career. Lies, lies, yeah. lies. Every time I see that book somewhere, like in a supermarket or an airport or whatever, it's on the top shelf and it's almost always all nearly sold out apart from about three yeah. copies. So yeah. flying off the shelves. Flying off the shelves. So lots of events all over the place. It's so good to get out and about. I really think it is. So that is it for now. Our next podcast will be in November. Thank you very much to Tom Tivnan, to Caroline Sanderson, to Helen Stanton, to Okicheku Nzelu and to Andrew Michael Hurley. If you'd like to talk to us, you can tweet us at at the bookseller or come to our Facebook page or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. We're available on iTunes, so please subscribe. And as you're probably doing right now, you can listen to us at thebookseller.com. And now we're going to close our programme with an audio extract from The Giver of Stars by Jojo Moyes. And that will end the 10th edition of The Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Listen. Three miles deep in the forest just below Arnott's Ridge, and you're in silence so dense it's like you're wading through it. There's no birdsong past dawn, not even in high summer, and especially not now, with the chill air so thick with moisture that it stills those few leaves clinging gamely to the branches. Among the oak and hickory, nothing stirs. Wild animals are deep underground, soft pelts intertwined in narrow caves or hollowed-out trunks. The snow is so deep the mule's legs disappear up to his hocks, and every few strides he staggers and snorts suspiciously, checking for loose flints and holes under the endless white. Only the narrow creek below moves confidently, its clear water murmuring and bubbling over the stony bed, headed down toward an endpoint nobody around here has ever seen. Marjorie O'Hare tests her toes inside her boots, but feeling went a long time back, and she winces at the thought of how they're going to hurt when they warm up again. Three pairs of wool stockings, and in this weather you might as well go bare-legged. She strokes the big mule's neck, brushing off the crystals forming on his dense coat with her heavy men's gloves. Extra food for you tonight, Charlie boy, she says, and watches as his huge ears flick back. She shifts, adjusting the saddlebags, making sure the mule is balanced as they pick their way down toward the creek. Hot molasses in your supper. Might even have some myself.
Four more miles, she thinks, wishing she had eaten more breakfast. Past the Indian escarpment, up the yellow pine track, two more hollers and old Nancy will appear, singing hymns as she always does, her clear, strong voice echoing through the forest as she walks, arms swinging like a child's to meet her. You don't have to walk five miles to meet me, she tells the woman every fortnight. That's our job. That's why we're on horseback. Oh, you girls do enough. She knows the real reason. Nancy, like her bedbound sister Jean, back in the tiny log cabin at Redlick, cannot countenance even a chance that she will miss the next tranche of stories. She's 64 years old with three good teeth and a sucker for a handsome cowboy. That Mac McGuire, he makes my heart flutter like a clean sheet on a long line. She clasps her hands and lifts her eyes to heaven. The way Archer writes him, well, it's like he steps right out of the pages in that book and swings me onto his horse with him. She leans forward conspiratorially. Ain't just that horse I'd be happy riding. My husband said I had quite the seat when I was a girl. I don't doubt it, Nancy. She responds every time, and the woman bursts out laughing, slapping her thighs like this is the first time she's said it. A twig cracks, and Charlie's ears flick. Ears that size he can probably hear halfway to Louisville. This way, boy, she says, guiding him away from a rocky outcrop. You'll hear her in a minute. Going somewhere? Marjorie's head snaps around. He is staggering slightly, but his gaze is level and direct. His rifle, she sees, is cocked, and he carries it, like a fool, with his finger on the trigger. So you'll look at me now, will you, Marjorie? She keeps her voice steady, her mind racing. I see you, Clem McCullough. I see you, Clem McCullough. He spits as he repeats it, like a nasty child in a schoolyard. His hair stands up on one side like he slept on it. You see me while you're looking down that nose of yours. You see me like you see dirt on your shoe, like you're something special. She has never been afraid of much, but she is familiar enough with these mountain men to know not to pick a fight with a drunk, especially one bearing a loaded gun.